0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. Throughout the past year and a half of podcast episodes, I've shared a lot of the struggles that I've encountered as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Recently, I was with some friends from grad school and the topic of Mormon polygamy and the history of racism within the LDS church came up. And one woman asked, sorry to say this, but how could anyone be a part of that church? And I totally understand and respect that question. Today we're going to confront some of the really hard things about being a woman in the LDS faith tradition. And we're also going to highlight some of the beauty and the goodness and the moral rightness that is found there in the church. And to illustrate one aspect of the many complicated factors of what it felt like to be a Mormon kid, here's a scene from my childhood. When I was little, in the 1980s, my parents drove a huge blue Suburban. My four younger siblings and I would listen to cassette tapes in the Suburban on road trips and just driving around town to piano lessons. And we listened to the same cassette tapes over and over and over again, often reading a book along with the audio track. And one of the classics was a musical that was called My Turn on Earth. It came out in 1986, and it was about a girl who lived with God and with the whole human family before being born in a human body on earth. And she has adventures on earth and she has to learn how to treat others kindly by living the golden rule. And she has to be a good steward of her body. And she learns how to write her own story, being in control of her life and trying again when she makes mistakes. And one thing of many that I internalized from that, my turn on earth book that I would read as I was listening to the tape was it was a page that showed all different representations of children on earth. I remember there was a Japanese girl in a kimono that I thought was so pretty. And there was a boy somewhere in Africa, just kids from all over the world. And what I got from that so strongly, and it's lasted my whole life, is that my soul could have come down to earth anywhere. I could have been born into a body of a a rich aristocratic family in France. I could have been born in a slum in Brazil. I could have been born into a Muslim family in Egypt or a Buddhist family in Thailand. And so my whole life, anyone I see anywhere, I have an awareness that that person could just as easily have been me. And if I had been born in their circumstances, who knows, I might believe and act just like they do. And the second thing I got from that is just an awareness that every single person that I meet was at that big family meeting before humans came to earth. So we are all siblings, even if we don't remember each other. This way of viewing other people is at the core of who I am. And today I am so honored and so excited to welcome to the podcast, the author of My Turn on Earth, Carolyn Pearson. Hi, Carolyn. Well, hi to you, Amy, great to be here. I am so excited to have you, and I could talk for hours just about the positive messages in My Turn on Earth, but I know that's maybe not your most famous or maybe even not your most impactful work, but I wanted to start out with that one because it was personally so meaningful to me. I'd love to talk about some of your other highly influential works and even have you read some of them for us, but to start us off, I'd love to get to know you better and and have our listeners get acquainted with you. So could you tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from and kind of what makes you, you?
1: Sure. (laughs) Well, originally, Amy, I am from heaven. And and my turn on earth began as all of our turns with all of these ancestors that brought us. And my ancestors, all of them for the, the immediate generations, were Mormon pioneers. And so, boy, that infused my mind and my heart and my work. I have ancestors in the wagon train, in the Mormon battalion, on the ship Brooklyn. So I myself have been deeply immersed in Mormonism and, and have experienced, as you explained, all of the beauty and all of the pain. And why I am still here is complicated, but I I really feel a great calling to be here. And I still appreciate all of the great stuff that is there. And I know that I, with you and many others, have, have a particular calling have helping us move further along on the territory, because where we are right now is not necessarily this is the place. This is the place where we are at this moment, and there is a better place ahead for us. And you and I and many, many others are assigned, are invited to help us find it.
0: Mm, that's beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first kind of related to your faith when you were born into the church? Was it a very happy experience for you, kind of simple, and then at what point did you start to realize, oh, there's pain here too? Um, Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Well, of course, where you're born just seems to be the world, and you don't know anything else. And I have this nice, warm cushion. We have these great truths, and we have this great history. And I had no reason to question anything. But I really believe that I came here with an already developed feminist consciousness. And it was in high school that I remember specifically just looking around and saying, you know, I'm one of the smart ones here. I'm one of the really good ones here. But for some strange reason, I am in the eyes of God, the creator, And in the heaven that I will be reporting to down the line, I am something of a second-class citizen. And that was just in the air that I breathed because maleness ran everything. And then, and I tell this little story in The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, that in high school, when my much-loved seminary teacher bore us his testimony, speaking of his second wife that was now his eternal companion, along with the first wife who had passed away, bearing us his testimony that this plan of eternal polygamy was so essential and that all of us, as we go along, will come to understand why this is God's special way of creating future worlds for us. And noting that, yes, who you young women might might find this not very attractive but as you grow in understanding and become less selfish you will understand this principle and yearn to live it and i remember walking home from school that day and that was the first time i really felt a schism between me and god and i thought wow if that's true there's something wrong with me because i do not fit in that i do not accept Mm. that and so for many years you know there was this tremendous struggle the system tells me this my heart and my mind tell me this other thing and the struggle was painful very painful and somewhere along the line i was able to say to myself you know it's not me and my mind and my heart that are wrong not saying that I know everything, but there is something in the system that I have been breathing and eating and living in and trying to understand for all these years. There is something in the system that is wrong. And that's a very brave thing to do. That's, that's pretty mm-hmm, scary. But that is a, a better option than saying, oh, All of this stuff that doesn't make sense is correct and the way that God wants it. And I'm the one that's wrong. How can one live with that? So anyway, that's sort of a little bit of my early history.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Can you tell us just to kind of be able to place your life, where did you grow up? And about what time period would that have been that you were in high school and kind of having that epiphany?
1: Sure. I was born in Salt Lake City. When I was eight, we moved out to the Uinda Basin. where We lived in Gusher, Utah, tiny little town for five years. And then we moved to Provo, where I finished my growing up. Went to BYU, got a bachelor's and a master's in theater. Had wonderful experiences there. Really good professors, great friends, wonderful opportunities. And that's how I was launched here. And all of the wonderful plays that I was able to be in have informed my vision of life. And, you know, I got to play Joan of Arc on the stage at BYU in the Joseph Smith Memorial Auditorium building. And that, of course, along with so many other powerful roles that I got to play. It's still there feeding my cells and helping to participate in making me feel more than I might have been. So I'm really grateful for all hmm. of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is really amazing. You said you were kind of born with a feminist consciousness, you said. Did you find any other kindred spirits, either in high school or in college at BYU? Was there any sort of feminist presence there at BYU? And again, tell us kind of the decade, because I have as a landmark, like, you know, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex came out in the United States in the early 50s, and then Betty Friedan with The Feminine Mystique in 63, and then The Second Wave of Feminism. When were you at BYU, and did you have any other friends who were thinking in similar ways at the time
1: i was at byu from 57 to 61 and then getting my masters in 62 and i do not have any memories of having friends who were really committed to thinking about a feminism all that seemed to happen a few years later After I I got my master's, I taught school for a year at Snow College, traveled for a year, came back, met my very dear queer husband that seems to be a part of my foundational story that most people know about, who insisted on publishing that first little book of poems called Beginnings. So during that time, I began to sense and participate in the foment that was going on. And then I made connections here and there and there with other women who were thinking about all these things. And a first woman's group that we sort of got together as naughty women to discuss these things. And so it it just all grew from there.
2: Hmm.
0: Okay. So as you were getting together with other women, and as there was foment happening in the broader culture... At that point, was church leadership already starting to push back against that cultural trend in the second wave? And if so, how did you respond to that tension between what you were feeling in your heart, which was being reflected in secular culture, and then the other feeling in your heart, which is, I love this faith tradition. How did you reconcile that?
1: I guess everything that happened around the Equal Rights Amendment that may have been the first really official thing that I saw. And that's when actually there was a period of time right then and there, because I did give a short statement before the Utah legislature on behalf of the Equal Rights Amendment. And I had written a letter in response to somebody at church education that had asked me for an opinion. There were several things going on at that time. That put me in a vulnerable place. I was not aware of this, but for a period of time, I was on the blacklist. I had become something of a presence because for whatever bizarre reason, my little book of Holmes beginnings took off. And my name was pretty much known in so many places in the church and used by the brethren. And so I did find myself right there in a very painful place of being at odds with the church and having their condemnation of participating in this. As one of them put it, that they had loved my writing, my poetry for, for so long, but now that I had joined the women's lib movement, <laughs> mm-hmm. as if you're baptized into that or something, they could no longer support me. But I have never had any bishop suggest that there should be a, a court held on me. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, mm-hmm. I've watched all of that happen over the years. And I don't know, I've just been protected, I guess. And I have mm-hmm. been very careful. I have not ever attacked anybody personally, mm-hmm. but I've said some very, very strong things and I have been very lucky to have really a good and understanding bishops, and especially state presidents. I love these good men, and I've been lucky that they have loved me.
0: That hmm. is lucky. Well, and it's lucky for all of us who have benefited from your work that you've been able to, however you have, kind of, I guess it's not, I was going to say slide under the radar, but that's not what you're describing. You've been very much on their radar, but you have just for
1: whatever Indeed. reason. And you see some of these more controversial me. books. I sent copies of The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy to all of the general authorities, along with the copies Did signed you? to each wife. Um, wow. I, I sent, Similarly, I sent copies of Finding Mother God to all the general authorities, the 15 major ones in Salt Lake and the top women leadership. So I have not been hiding anything that I've done. What was the response? Did you hear back Nothing. from them? Nothing. Okay. And which, which I didn't expect to receive anything. I know that they sure. just cannot make a response to anything that might even be sure. slightly controversial.
0: Of course, because then you could publish I, it online and then they're in yeah, hot water. I have so.
1: reason to believe that there was conversation about, especially okay. about the ghost of eternal polygamy.
0: That's great, because I would like to get to that book and talk about it. But first, I'd like to highlight a few of your different works I'd love to start first with a piece that you wrote called A Walk in the Pink
1: Moccasins. A little introductory statement that I make here. Men cannot possibly know what it is like to be a female child in a motherless home, unless they are shocked into glimpsing what it would be like to be a male child in a fatherless house or home. I have had for years a kind of Walter Mitty daydream in which I teach them. I become one of the presiding sisters, speaking to the, quote, boys of comparable age. You know, that used to be a thing that we had deacons, teachers, et cetera, and then we had the girls of comparable age. That was way back oh, then. Oh, my. That was a thing. Okay, oh. here's the little speech. My dear young brethren, it is such a delight to be able to speak to you today. Your faces and your clothing look so clean and fresh. I know that our mother in heaven is pleased as she looks down on you this day. And I want, first of all, to convey to you the fact that our mother loves you. I am persuaded that she loves you just as much as she loves her daughters and I hope you can believe that. And what a marvelous plan she has laid out for you. What a glorious role you are called to fill. How you must have rejoiced in spirit as she created the earth and placed there her crowning creation Eve, the first and perfect woman. But of course our mother could see that Eve was not complete, that she needed a worthy help to assist her in the great work she was called to do. And so this is where you come in, dear brethren. A rib from Eve's own body was fashioned into the body of Adam, and he was given to her as a friend and helper. What a glorious and noble calling. So important was he to Eve and so important the commandment her mother had given that even when Adam sinned because he was deceived, Eve knowingly sinned with him so they could remain together. And over the centuries, how you must have rejoiced as the plan unfolded further through the great matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, as our mother's holy prophetesses continued to reveal her word to us as woman after woman was sent to do important work, making us all better people so that we could bless the lives of our husbands and children. Keep yourselves clean and pure, dear brethren. That one day one of our mother's choice daughters might look with favor upon you, claim you as her own, and give to you the glorious privilege of serving as her helpmeet, adding glory unto her as she adds glory unto the mother and do not listen to the voices that cry out to you from the world. We are living in dark and evil times. Satan herself desires you. Do not listen to the voices that tell you you are suppressed, that entice you to a thing called full personhood and freedom. The role of man has always been made clear by God herself. The place he occupies in our mother's plan is not in question. It is now, always has been, and always will be, to stand by the side of woman assisting her in the work she has been given to do. It is true that new doors are opening for man to contribute in many fields besides his primary one, and we are glad when a man shows talents and abilities in a wider range of service. We encourage this. We are proud of the achievements of our fine young men. And as the light of our mother grows brighter in this world, we learn even more of the glorious truths concerning manhood, that it is intended indeed to be a partnership with woman. In fact, one of the truths of our age, and I believe with all my heart, this is a truth, even though it was—it is not official, and we don't want to talk much about it. Somewhere we've a father there. Imagine, somewhere we've a father there. Now, in my daydream, when the dust of the shock settles, the men who have just heard what I said nod their heads and say i see and they are never quite the same again so that is somewhat dated you know there have been various significant and sometimes just very nuanced advances on this subject but nevertheless the heart of what i just read to you is essentially what we all received as little girls growing up and as women today
2: Mm -hmm.
0: it certainly is
1: and we right now have a, a tremendous opportunity in this space of now that in our church in our nation in the world the paradigm is shifting it just is and the paradigm of maleness being supreme and femaleness being auxiliary, that paradigm is being challenged. In fact, since I brought up that word, I want to read one of the tiny little poems here in Finding Mother God that's called Paradigm Shift because this is what we're doing and it's so important. Paradigm Shift. After 359 years, the Pope acknowledged that heretic Galileo was right and the sun does not revolve around the earth. How long will it take men of the earth to acknowledge that we heretic women are right and the female does not revolve around the male? For we too have scoped the heavens, revealed the center can testify of the brilliant celestial bodies, and lo, the heavenly him and the heavenly her do no orbiting, no presiding, no ranking. Are perfect partners in a slow dance so close you would observe that they are one and i think that paradigm shift is really more important for our day-to-day lives than the paradigm shift that galileo and all those folks brought in. Hmm. When we have maleness at the center of the universe it affects everything in everybody's life no matter who they are or what they do. It's in the air that we breathe. So this is a very exciting time and Women with the men who also feel called to this task are participating in a very sacred paradigm shift. And essential to that is revisiting the gender of God. And it's not just, you know, sort of bringing in this sweet little heavenly mother that's been hiding over there in the corner. It's understanding that godness is equally female and male, however you want to call it. So, anyway, we're in a very fertile, wonderful time, and we should be thrilled that we get to do the work that is bringing in the future.
0: Well, tell us a little bit more about the book that you just read from, Carolyn. Is it called Finding Mother God? Can you tell us about what led you to write that book? And if you'd like to read any more from it, we'd love to hear another piece or two. (laughs)
1: Uh, This is my most recently published book. Finding Mother God, a subtitle is Poems to Heal the World. This little book was not born in anger, but it was conceived in anger. Hmm. I go to this occasionally, a, a fireside that's held here in Berkeley, and on this one occasion, a, a gentleman came to speak, a scholar, and he was, gonna, he was talking about women in Mormon liturgy. And I thought, okay, that, that'll be fascinating. So anyway, the whole thing, I'm not blaming him. I'm just blaming the fact that everything he brought was so discouraging, so distressing, and at the end, when the question and answer periodized, I said, "Listen, what's it going to take for any of the brethren to address one of the most essential issues that we have, which is to question the gender of God?" And he said, speaking truthfully, "I don't believe any of the brethren in Salt Lake have any interest in doing the heavy lifting." that would be required to address this subject. And, oh, I left that meeting. I sensed that what he was saying was true, that nobody cares enough to do the heavy lifting. And so the friend I drove home with, she was angry too. I talked to a number of women who were angry. And I was so angry that the next day I was still, I was so angry that I cried the next day. I was so angry that I grabbed a notebook and I wrote out a little poem. And then the next day I wrote two. The next day I wrote another one. And before I knew what mm. I was writing, you know, this collection of poems, you know, it's not poetic poetry. And many of them are just, you know, little thoughts that are constructed in such a way as to really grab you. So I just continued to write these. And, and before long, I realized... I'm not angry anymore. I'm excited. I'm really excited. because As I put on one of the first pages of the Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, when I started that book, I wrote, I'm not angry this morning. I have been angry, but I have learned that anger is good as a fuel, but it is not good as a destination. So actually, you know, you will find a lot of love in the Ghost of Eternal Polygamy. And you will find a great deal of love, of course, in finding Mother God. So these are just a couple of the contributions that I have been given the opportunity of making. And it's been really, really thrilling.
2: Hmm,
0: That's wonderful. I love hearing about the generative force of anger. I think sometimes, especially as women, because we're so conditioned to not even feel anger, right? As Christians, everybody is regardless of gender, but specifically women in our culture, we're not supposed to demonstrate anger. And so we've talked about that on past episodes of the podcast, that anger isn't always a bad thing, that it can be used as a constructive force, not always as a destructive force. So I appreciate that story. Is there a piece from Finding Mother God that you'd like to read or talk about?
1: Let me read this longer poem. I've been thinking about this one because recently I have been, you know, I don't, the news is so heavy these days. The the other day I just switched off and I put on my DVD of Mary Poppins, which is maybe one of my favorite all-time movies. And I think it is a (laughs) profound movie. So I would like to just share with you the poem that I, it's kind of, it's a longer, sort of a narrative poem. I think, gives us a vision of where we are and the importance of what we're doing. And last night, actually, I watched, and I had seen it before, I kind of wanted my son to see it, Saving Mr. Banks, the story of how Mary Poppins got made by Disney. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, Mm -hmm. brilliant movie. And Mm -hmm. all of this is themed to transforming patriarchy. Mr. Banks, the father to these little children that Mary Poppins visits, he represents the patriarchy, and he's transformed. Surely you must have noticed in Disney movies, along with the catchy songs, all the dead mothers. Mother of Ariel killed by pirates. Mother of Bambi shot by Hunter mother of Belle died from plague, mother of Nemo eaten by Barracuda, mother of Tarzan killed by Leopard, mother of Quasimodo killed protecting her son, mother of Cinderella dead, mother of Pocahontas dead, mother of Snow White dead. Suspicious, don't you think? Such a stunningly high rate of maternal mortality in one subdivision? It cries out for an investigation, which is why I did one, and here are my findings. We are the guilty party, you and I, and our ancestors way back before a camera was even a flash in someone's dream. The storyteller of the tribe is a medicine man to our psyches and knows our substrata terrors and our needs, and draws them into words, and sometimes, if we are lucky, brings remedies, as in this case, the tale of the missing mother and the miserable patriarchal family. Here we are in the dark, popcorn in hand, gathered before the large and flickering fire we call a screen, ready for a brilliant show and tell actually two stories to tell today, the better to demonstrate, my dear, this pandemic malady of ours on a split screen, which you can do because this is the movies, and which I can do because this is a poem. Act one, the motherless house. Screen one, Captain Von Trapp, military man of Austria, keeps order with whistle. Mother dead, seven children, good little soldiers, sad, sad, sad. Screen two, Mr. Banks, agent of fidelity fiduciary, lord of his castle. Mother out marching for votes for women, two children, Jane and Michael, sad, sad, sad. What can help but heaven? And heaven opens. Down from the hills comes the aproned woman of song with the holy name of Maria, sent by God and the mother Abbas to set the family right. And simultaneously, down from the London sky by umbrella comes the woman of magic with the holy name of Mary, sent by God and the east wind to set the family right. I know. For a minute there I was believing that Julia Andrews was actually our heavenly mother, but no, just one of her beautiful daughters who got two fabulous roles. Act two The Woman turns things upside down the von trapp children climb trees verily the tree of life and warmth and music returned to the home and a smile to the lips of the captain how do you solve a problem like the goddess You marry her in a grand cathedral blessed by nuns and bring healing to the family, mortal and divine. And she fortifies the captain in his courage to say no to the fatherland, no to the motherless house of the ultra patriarchal brown shirt Nazis. And simultaneously, Poppins unleashes her magic, a lullaby, A spoonful of sugar and a trip to make-believe where we levitate and love to laugh and step in time with chimney sweeps and see that Mary is indeed practically perfect every day and in every way. And we want to feed the birds with our tuppence rather than invest in incorporations, amalgamations of the highly patriarchal fidelity fiduciary bank. Act three, the healed family rises. And now in this dark theater, we celebrate as we see our way, feel our way, with the family von Trapp stumbling and rising, climbing, climbing the high green mountain, up, up, closer, ever closer to heaven. And look, the Banks family, flying the kite repaired by father's own hands and trading mother's votes for women, banner useless now except as a tail to stabilize the kite as it rises up, up, into the blue and white sky. And our communal psyche stirred by the storyteller of the tribe, whispers to the full theater, yes, yes, something holy just happened here. Wholeness and holiness happened
2: here.
0: That was just brilliant and, and powerful. Thank you. There are two other works of yours that I want to make sure that we talk about today. One of them, you mentioned earlier in the episode that you met your adored queer husband. And some of our listeners might be familiar with that part of your story, but some might not. And I'd, I'd love it if you would talk just for a minute about perhaps about your marriage or perhaps we could approach it through the lens
1: of your book. The book that tells the story of my life with my husband, and was published in 1986, tells the story of our marriage, Carolyn and Gerald, in the Salt Lake Temple, for time and all eternity, and we had had a conversation about his homosexual desires and some experiences. But that's not who he really was. He knew that. And he he loved me as absolutely best he could. And and I certainly did love him. So I, I really felt, as did he, to move forward with this. And we had in so many ways a good marriage. He learned early on that his inner workings had not shifted. But neither one of us wanted to end the marriage. And after Our years in Provo, our four children, realizing that that we might need to make a huge shift, we moved. And part of the reason was I didn't want to play out a possible divorce in Utah because I was quite a public figure at that time. So anyway, we moved to where I am living now in Walnut Creek, California. And after four years of just trying so hard to find a way to salvage the marriage, we decided to divorce and to remain good friends, which we did. And a few years later, Gerald passed away from AIDS, and that was in 1984. I was taking care of him at the end of, of his life. I never, ever, ever thought, and we never had a conversation that I would ever write our story. It was just too shameful. But soon after his death, it occurred to me that he and I had both learned an awful lot and that there was so much ignorance and pain going on in general in the country and certainly in our Mormon community where this this subject, you don't even know how to talk about it so i did determine to write our story and i got an agent who sold it immediately to random house in new york and they published it under the name goodbye i love you they sent me on an eight city tour i was on oprah i was on good morning america and all the big morning shows and it was really one of the very very first things in mormondom that opened the conversation on this subject in any kind of a compassionate way. And I know that that book over the years has been of tremendous benefit to untold number of families and individuals because I I continue to hear from them even now. So that's the story of that.
0: And then you decided to write the subsequent book No More Goodbyes circling the wagons around our gay loved ones in order to reach a wide audience, as you saw that this was happening in a lot of families?
1: I had written a stage play called Facing East about the story of a good upstanding LDS family dealing with the suicide of their gay son. And that play uh, was very, very widely seen and given recognition in Utah. The Deseret News gave it the award of best play of the year, tied with Hamlet, on the Shakespeare Hmm. Festival of that season i knew that that i'd have an opportunity to shine the light again on this subject because of that play and i hadn't done anything really since goodbye i love you so i gathered stories about families especially letting nothing come between them and their gay loved ones that was the essential thrust of that book no more goodbyes and i sent a copy of that book to all the general authorities And actually, I did get uh, about three thank yous Mm. from some of them. Yeah,
0: That's good to know. What are your thoughts on what's happening recently with the church? I mean, this has been a huge point of, I feel like, a schism within the church of those who are really re-entrenching in that anti-LGBTQ stance and those who want the church to move
1: forward. Well, I just observe what you just described. And I know that ultimately progress and kindness and understanding and inclusion win over discarding people who frighten us. This is not an easy, quick thing. This is a long haul. And in the meantime, we do day by day what is in front of us and take risks to do just a little bit more than we feel comfortable with. If everybody listening here took advantage of everything that just happens to come into your possibility of your affecting it, and then deliberately went just a little bit further to a little bit less comfortable place, I think that's how we how we make progress, and I have no condemnation at all for all of the good people that I know who have said, "Hey, wait a minute, <laughs> I don't think there's any progress to be made in this organization. I, I'm going to go out where I can find, you know, r- really find a place that I can do good work and that I can feel more comfortable." Hmm. And you know, there's a part of me that that could say that, but I feel that I belong right here where I am. And I'm not going to allow anybody to tell me that I don't belong here. And they haven't. You know, my my ward loves me. Isn't that an amazing, you know, it, it can be seen as a modern-day Mormon miracle that my ward and my stake have just been so extraordinarily good to me.
0: Oh, that's that is amazing. I just am amazed by your sovereignty and your confidence in doing what you know when your heart is right. I mean, from beginning to end, that's what I just keep being struck by in your story. And I mean, I think as you're challenging people to go into that zone of discomfort, I think so many people feel discomfort because of it's either the judgment of others, the judgment of their families and their communities. I mean, human beings are such social creatures, of course, that it's very uncomfortable for most people to not be conforming to the status quo and, you know, to have the disapproval of people that you love and admire your own parents, the people that you were taught to, to follow. And so that discomfort, it just, it is truly so painful. And that's why, you know, people who are willing to endure that are so admirable because it's such difficult work. But if you know in your heart that it's true, I mean, that's, we learn in the church also, I have to say, because I started out the episode by talking about the positive things that we learn in the church. I learned to have integrity in the context of the church. I learned to be honest about what I really thought and to be kind to others and to follow, you know, to follow, what I believe was coming from God. And so we get these mixed messages, and at the end of the day, we just I, have to do what I, I we know. think is right. I
1: know. It's a crazy making richness. You know, <laughs> what you just described. <laughs> That's fantastic. It is, it is a crazy making richness of opportunity. <laughs> because, yes. Oh, I love that. You know, I, I don't want to leave our church because I have been called to be on the front lines. And, you know, Mormondom mm-hmm. presents a wonderful front lines of engaging with patriarchy. And my n- nobody that I know of wants to replace patriarchy with matriarchy. The goal is, and my stated goal is, to assist in transforming patriarchy into partnership. That's worth fighting for. And I'm grateful to be on the front lines. And I think that's where the best work is done.
0: I love it. Well, it's definitely, it's also just inspiring to hear someone who definitely knows where their work is. And I appreciated you also saying, you know, that you don't have judgment for those who feel a calling to be brave by leaving, right? There are those who feel called to be brave by staying. And those are, right. Yep. We just have to be true to what we feel in our hearts is right. So I appreciated that as well. Okay, one last book to talk about, Carolyn. You've provided us so much material that we could draw from that we could be talking for hours and hours. But one last book that you've referenced several times so far in the episode, and I want to make sure we get to it, is The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy. And listeners who are not well acquainted with Mormonism or have never been in the LDS church might be more well acquainted with LDS polygamy just from watching under the banner of heaven, or there was also a documentary recently about the Warren Jeffs branch of the fundamentalist LDS church that's called Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. That just came out too. So there has been lots of buzz about polygamy. I mean, it comes up in the news every, every few years. But I personally was really struck and very moved and very grateful for your book. And even just the title I thought was so well put, that it it's a ghost of eternal polygamy, that you get that sense of being haunted, that you can be going about your life and everything's fine, but just in the back of your mind, there's just this nagging feeling of, but what if that's true? And I guess you it wasn't just a what if for you, you said you had an ecclesiastical leader who was preaching it, that it was absolutely going to be true, that you would all be plural wives in well, heaven. So tell, talk a little bit about that yeah. book.
1: Well, if we were righteous enough. We would because that it was an understood thing. If you were righteous enough to be in the top layer of the celestial kingdom, where gods are made, that that is how it happens, of course. And and that God Himself is an eternal polygamist. I mean, we we don't nobody likes to touch that now because it's so icky. It's just icky. It's so icky. But it it's is horrible, still in our psyches because nobody has ever said, wait a minute, that is not true i propose that in the psyche somewhere in the back of the psyche of every devoted mormon woman and somewhere in the back of the relationship of every devoted mormon couple there is a little bit of unsettling something that that troubles a lot of men but primarily troubles women that says And, you know, that's why I wrote The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, because I saw year after year after year the damage that is done to women's sense of self and to marriages also. So I I sent out this survey that ultimately had over 8,000 people take the survey. And they sent in, you know, I I got a couple of thousand stories. This was all uh, anonymous. And from those stories, I chose ones that demonstrated the different ways in which today in our Mormon marriages, in our Mormon female psyches, the ghost is very, very much alive and doing such damage. It really puzzled. I love seeing, you know, all of the activity that's going on around bringing back the concept of mother in heaven. There's boy, there's a lot and it's not going away. But I'm personally sort of surprised that there's not that much passion about addressing this subject that every one of us has to deal with some way or another. That if we're sufficiently righteous, eternal polygamy is very likely what we will be experiencing in, in eternity. To me, that is, that is emotional, spiritual violence that demands to be addressed. I wish that everybody would start talking about it, that there would be an uprising against this subject. Yes, I was going to ask you. today, Today is not a good day for any organization, any church to try to defend the emotional, spiritual abuse of women. And I say without any hesitation, the concept that is still in the air that we breathe in the chapel, in the water that we drink in our sacrament, all of these concepts of the how the feminine and the masculine relate to one another are all polluted with the concept of eternal polygamy and i just wish that the passion that i felt and that i continue to feel that drove me to write the ghost of eternal polygamy i wish that that could somehow catch on fire i don't know what it would look like but i think our organization needs to be called to account for the pain that exists in mormon marriages how women have written to me that they withhold love from their husbands because they have this vision that sometime, somewhere they're going to have to share him with somebody else. And one of them wrote, I hold back a little so I'll have something of myself left when that time comes that I have to see him with another woman. That is vicious. I want to say as clearly as I can, that is vicious, it is violence, and that is emotional and spiritual abuse of women. And it not ought to happen today, no matter whose church you're looking at. Amen. Amen. And Amen. So I do not believe for one moment that God had anything to do with Mormon polygamy. And, you know, I've I've had women send me a thank you emails and cards saying, wow, you've shown me a way that I can stay in the church and throw away polygamy. They said, because I thought, I'm going to have to leave this church. I'm going to have to leave it because polygamy is so damnable. But having read my book, I have many people say I feel now that if I choose, I can throw away the concept of eternal polygamy and truly believe that had God had nothing to do with it and maintain the good things and maintain the position that I want to maintain in the church. So I, I first of all, have to ask everybody to consider the idea that that was just an error from the get-go. Boy, that takes an awful lot of weight off of me. I think mothers, no matter how they fall on this, can talk to the daughters and say, listen, I want you to trust your own heart and your own mind before you trust anything else trust our own authority Mm -hmm. you know we're sort of asked to give away our authority to those who really have authority and that screws everything up pretty badly Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. by virtue of who we are of being divine entities offspring of the divinity that is equally female and male we have authority And we need to utilize that in a way that is consistent with the highest principles of everything Jesus taught. And the highest principle of everything is love. Now, I suggest that Mormon polygamy does not have anything to do with love. It has to do with control and with some bizarre form of male advancement. But It does not have to do with love. And if we can keep the concept and the feeling of love as we evaluate all of these things that we've been talking about here, and just say, does that pass the love standard? Does that sound like it came from the heart of a God of love? and not say, well, no, it doesn't feel right, but I know that once I get over there, I'll come to understand it. That, that's not good enough. That is not good enough. We have to find things that here and now, right now, feel clear, correct, and loving, and godly, because God is love, and that's it.
0: And that's it. Hear, here. Well, that, that is a perfect way to wrap up our conversation, Carolyn. I couldn't agree more. And I actually wanted to end with a song that I grew up singing with my siblings and my friends as an earnest little Mormon girl. And this song is about love. This is another one that Carolyn Pearson wrote that is really at the core of who I am. It's called I'll Walk With You. And it is about that love, about seeking out those on the margins. And I've been to several events that are kind of Mormon outreach to LGBTQ people. And this song is always sung at these meetings. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. So we're, we're going to present it as at the end of the episode. But before we go, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for your rich body of work that's had such a positive impact on women, especially, but upon the whole faith tradition and moved things forward so that the next generation can pick up where you've gotten us to and take it forward, as you said, to new territory, to better, more loving territory. So thank you for all you've done. And thank you for being with us today, Carolyn.
1: Oh, and thank you. Thank you very much, Amy. And to all those who are listening, I know you you have your own vineyard of the work that you have been given to do. And whatever it looks like, let us just do it well.
2: Some people will want-
0: thanks one last time to Carolyn Pearson for joining us today. We're so grateful for all of her incredible contributions to literature, to theater, to faith, and beyond. We're thankful as well to Sam Rose Prebinger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And we're thankful to you again, all of you who are listening today. Make sure to listen again next week when I'll be talking with Alexandra Botes, a world-class chess player, gamer, and streamer. It'll be a fascinating conversation about forging a career as a young woman in a male-dominated field about imposter syndrome, about online harassment, and the future of women and girls in chess and gaming. All of this next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.